The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2010 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For other audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. Is the end of the world coming as we know it in December 21st of 2012? We know that's not going to occur, but there are people in the world today that really ponder that question. Do you know that 60% of all Americans believe the world will end sometime? In other words, that things cannot continue on as they are, but there must be some end. There's just that general sense. Part of what's driving it is a growing sense of crisis given the recent events that have been occurring uh, in the last few years, natural disasters, the earthquakes, the tsunamis, the hurricanes, the, you know, the Katrina storms, the uh, we, we just this year experienced two devastating um, earthquakes, uh, one in, in, down in South America and one in Haiti. There's been the economic meltdown that be- began in 2008, and we were told that would last about six months, maybe a year, and things would get back to normal. And here we are uh, almost two years later, and things are not back to normal. And we continually see troubled news about our finances and our economy. Then there's the turmoil in the Middle East, and we don't really uh, have to talk too much about that. We're all well aware of the struggle that goes on in the Middle East and how it continually is in the news. I don't know if you, you heard the news this afternoon, but somebody burnt a Koran near the uh, 9-11 site in New York City this afternoon. And so uh, it's been done, and we'll see what the outcome of that is. And then, of course, there's things like food source, uh, shortages, depletion of resources that are occurring on this earth. And it just gives a lot, a lot of people a great uncertainty about the future. It's the number one thing they say holding our economy back right now is that people across America and around the world have a great uncertainty about the future. And so our businesses are not taking the cash that they have in their bank accounts and investing it back and creating new jobs because they don't know what the future holds. And they're very, very concerned about it. All this comes together in people asking the question, that is this a build-up to some intimate catechism? You know, a prelude to uh, the apocalypse that could be coming in the year 2012. That's what a lot of people are asking. And one of the signs that we see of all this uh, 2012 phenomenon and the interest that the cosmic clock may be winding down to zero is a couple movies that were released within the last year, year and a half. One was released this past winter called uh, 2012, and you probably, where you're sitting, can't see the little byline above it, but it says... Uh, I can't even read it. Oh, it says, who will be left behind? Now, I wonder if they asked Tim LaHaye for the use of that before they, uh... no, they didn't. I'm sure they didn't. But listen, very clever. They're tying this into end time events. And they're trying to pique people's interests as they're trying to get them to come into the theater. But this whole movie was, a, was about the phenomenon of the end of the world as we know it in 2012. Many say that the ancient Mayan calendar is really the key to understanding all that's going on in this phenomenon of 2012 and that the world will end. So what is really behind the growing interest in 2012? Well, on December 21st of 2012, we will reach the end of the 5,000-year cycle of the Mayan long-count calendar, which uh, causes a growing number of people to predict that that will be the end of this age and that will bring about the apocalypse. So they're referring to it in ways like being history's final day, the galactic tipping point, or the astronomical grand finale. 
I want to mention to you, though, but before anybody gets too worked up about this, we've been here before, haven't we? Remember Y2K? Yeah, and all the concern, and could this be the beginning of the end, and is this when the apocalypse is going to begin, and people predicted that that, uh, things were going to radically change at the beginning of this millennium. The 2012 phenomenon really seems to have its beginnings back in 1986 or 87. There was a book written by Jose Aguiles called The Mayan Factor, and uh, he really began the interest in 2012. During that year, he established a peace initiative that he called the Harmonic Convergence, and he held a series of, of meetings, conferences around the world where people came together to study all this, and it really created this 2012 subculture that's been been underground for a number of years that has suddenly exploded and come into the mainstream, which has led to things like uh, the movies that we've seen and other planned events coming up in, in the near future. There's talk about a miniseries and, and other movies to tie into this whole 2012 phenomenon. Many people today are 2012 curious. There is a study today that's known as 2012-ology. Uh, there's also uh, 2012 conferences being held all over the world. If you go to the Internet and do a search for 2012 End of the World, you get over 9 million hits. So this is not just a minor thing that's going on. So we have movies and television shows, uh, media and, and interests that continue to grow in its awareness. And I believe as we get closer and closer to December 21st of 2012, we're going to see more in the media, more in the entertainment uh, industry focusing on this phenomenon. People, as they're trying to understand the 2012 phenomenon and give credibility to it, they've been turning to various sources to collaborate the Mayan 2012 calendar and the master code as they refer to it. So they're turning to things like ancient lost civilizations that may give understanding to the end of the world. Uh, They're looking at the uncertain predictions of Nostradamus. If you watch uh, the History Channel and A&E, they've been running series on Nostradamus. And uh, they're taking a look at all different aspects. Nostradamus, when he was alive, wrote a book called The Prophecies. And uh, so they're studying that book. They're looking at people like Mother Shipton and Edgar Case, two clairvoyants uh, who, had, uh, who were significant in their time. They're studying the psychic prophecies of Merlin the Magician, looking into Bible codes and Bible prophecies. You understand what Bible codes are? Bible codes is, is basically you take a section of text and you pick a sequence maybe every 100th letter or word, every 100th word. And you go through and pick every 100th, and you can go in any direction, forward, backward, diagonally, up or down. And then you look to see what kind of combinations you get. And in some occasions, you will get combinations that that, uh, have some sense to them that people use to try to predict the future. i got to tell you, Bible codes are not for us. Jesus Christ, God's own son, was here never ever used Bible codes, nor did any of the apostles, nor did anyone in the Bible. But uh, that's one of the places turning as well as Native North and Central American Indian tribes that they're looking at. So who were the Mayans? Mayans were a civilization uh, that began in Mesopotamia. We're not exactly certain where they began from, but they basically lived in the area of the Yucatan Peninsula, extended basically from Central uh, Mexico down to Nicaragua. And uh, or Honduras, I mean, they occupied the land and they developed rather large cities for their time. The city, for example, of Tikal had 50,000 inhabitants at its peak with about 3,000 buildings and six square miles. This whole area of the Yucatan Peninsula has been uh, examined extensively by archaeologists. They continue every year to go down there. 
uh, and study that area more because a lot of their cities were hidden in the forest for centuries and have been rediscovered. And, and so it's great for archaeologists to get their hands on this. But this was a significant civilization. It really peaked between about 200 B.C. and 980, which means it was a major civilization during the time Jesus Christ was here on the earth. It was half a world away. But in the area of the Yucatan Peninsula, this in Central America, this was a predominant civilization. We know that they were ferocious warriors because of uh, what their monuments attest to. And for a, a Mayan army to go into battle, they had to be led by their king. But they had this tradition, if you will. If the army lost, in order to preserve the people, they would sacrifice the king. Okay, now think about that. Tomorrow is the beginning of the NFL season for all but two teams that already played last Thursday night. Imagine how many men would be interested in being NFL coaches if they knew as soon as they lost, they'd be sacrificed for the good of the team. (laughs) Yet there are a lot of you here that might want to sacrifice the coach of the team that you root for because you don't care for him, don't think he's very good. But you understand what it did was it caused them to think twice before they went to battle, which was probably a good thing. The population peaked about 14 million in 800 A.D. gives you kind of a a feel for how large a civilization the Mayans were. And here's the mysterious thing about the Mayans. Within 100 years from their peak, their population declined by about 80 to 90 percent. It's a mystery to this day what happened to them because it doesn't appear to have been because of a war where another uh, civilization or, or another nation came in and took them out. In fact, I was just reading the other day, uh, or, or actually watching a, a video report of some of the current excavations going on this summer down in Central America, one of the Mayan villages. And one of the things they've determined is it was not because of military invasion that this city went from being an active city one day to being deserted within a day or two. And one of the reasons they know that is in some of the homes they found, they found the pottery there just stacked up in the corner of like the kitchen as if they expected to return. They know that the people suddenly evacuated the city, but their mindset was that they were going to come back, but they never did. It's still a mystery today as to what happened. What we do know about the Mayans is that they were considered the lords of time. This was a civilization that was obsessed with time, beyond any other civilization that we know of. They painstakingly charted the cycles, the moon, the sun, and Venus, and from that they were accurately able to uh, develop calendars unlike any other civilization until modern times when we've had uh, other instruments like calculators and slide rules and so forth to use to help us calculate time. So without telescopes, the Mayan astronomers calculated the length of the lunar month to be 29.53020 days. Now remember, this is without a telescope, without any instruments, just by what God gave them when they were born, Right? They, they were able to calculate the length of the lunar month within 34 seconds of the actual length of what it is. It's an incredible feat. Can't imagine what, it, what that involves. Their 2,000-year-old Mayan calendar is believed to be more accurate than the 500-year-old Gregorian calendar that we use today. And, and they did all this without not only telescopes, but calculators and computers and devices that we use today to measure time. For the Mayans, time was holy. 
Their time formed history, not the other way around. So they believed that the time was an enactment of a cosmic plan, a plan that was already in place that was being acted out. So the Mayan calendar contained the map of this plan. Mayan time codes were very elaborate, very precise. Mayans view time as a series of cycles. And we think of time on a line, don't we? And we always talk about timelines, and we lay things out in timelines. They did not think of life that way, and they did not think of time that way. They thought of time in, in terms of cycles. So their calendar measures with great detail these cycles. The Mayans relied on three main calendars. They had over a dozen calendars, but there were three main ones that they used. The first one was their solar calendar called the Hob. It had 18 months lasting 20 days and then one month for five days, giving them 365 days. How did they figure this out? I don't know, but they did. They also had a ceremonial or sacred calendar, their religious calendar called the Zilkin, that was 260 days long. It's based on the number of human gestation days, the number of days it takes for a woman to bear a child. And uh, that's very common in ancient civilizations that they tied religious worship to fertility. And then the calendar that we want to focus on tonight for this 2012 phenomenon is this long count calendar, which documents world age cycles that repeat over and over again. Here's a picture of of how they represented their calendar. Since they're documenting cycles, it's not amazing, is it, that they would have a circular calendar that goes in a circle as a cycle would. They divided... Uh, the calendar into five units that extend backward and forward in time from what they believe to be the the creation of the Maya civilization. So they believe the Mayan civilization began on August 11th, 3114 B.C., and that that was the beginning of the fifth cycle of this calendar. It's represented on their calendar as 0.0.0.0.1, which they call day one really intelligent, isn't it? The last day on the calendar is supposed to end on December 21st of 2012. They never lived as a civilization to see the end of this cycle. But when we carry out the conclusion of that last fifth cycle, it will end December 21st of 2012, which is called day last. But here's what they believed. They believed the day after the last day of this fifth cycle would be day one of the first cycle of the next five-cycle calendar. Now, they broke their calendar down into three major units. First was a Bakhtun, which lasted for 144,000 days, a little over 400 years. And then at 13, they took 13 of the Bakhtuns, and that made one great cycle, which is the 5,125 years. And when you put five of those great cycles together, you get a processional cycle, of 25,625 years. And we'll talk in a minute about what a processional cycle is. All five of these cycles are supposed to end in destruction, according to my tradition. So 2012 is the year of the fifth cycle, and that becomes part of the basis for this belief in the end of days in 2012. It's, It's really foundational to all that's going on in this discussion of 2012 being the end of life as we know it. I said we're going to talk about processional cycle. Remember, I said five cycles equal 25,625 years, called a processional cycle. A processional cycle is the amount of time it takes for the earth to complete one full wobble. Do you know the earth wobbles? But it doesn't fall down. So one wobble. What's a wobble? Well, the earth wobbles one degree every 72 years. 
It doesn't rotate perfectly on its axis. It's off slightly. And so every 72 years, it wobbles one degree. And so it takes 25,800 years to complete one full cycle. That's 360 degrees of wobbling. Within 175 years, the Mayans had this figured out. Again, I cannot explain to you how they understood this other than they studied time so precisely that they came to comprehend all of this. Now, here's one other important aspect to this whole 2012 phenomenon. 2012, December 21st, that marks the end of the fifth cycle is also the end of the processional cycle, and it coincides with an interesting event, the galactic alignment of our sun and earth with the equator that cuts across the black hole that's in the middle of our Milky Way. So there's a black hole in the middle of our Milky Way. When you, when you line up the equator on December 21st of 2012, the sun and the moon will line up perfectly with that equator. That only occurs once every 25,800 years. Okay? A majority of those that follow the 2012 phenomenon believe that December 2012 is going to usher in this apocalypse in which they believe that uh, upwards to 90% of the people on the face of the earth will die. Their, their belief in that is because they believe when the, the earth and the moon cross over the galactic equator, it's going to change the magnetic poles on the earth. This is their theory. And when that happens, the earth's outer crust is going to go into chaos. So here's the kind of things they believe are going to happen. Planet-wide earthquakes, volcanoes, tidal waves, dramatic climate changes, electromagnetic storms. They also believe at the same time that there'll be increased solar activity that create wave after wave of Katrina-like storms upon the face of the earth. So they see mass loss of life as a result of all this destruction that occurs. If you watch that movie 2012, you will see it's a movie that's based, that, that picks up in this time period about mid-year 2012 and follows all this change going on in the earth. And there's a gentleman with his children that uh, is kind of catching on to what's going on. He's a scientist. And they all race to this place in Tiberias where there are these ships that they get on to survive all this destruction going on. These are not spaceships. These are rather uh, arcs, modern-day arcs. And very, very wealthy people have paid tremendous amounts of money to be able to get on these arcs. What doesn't make sense to me in the movie is if the earth is going to be destroyed that much, what difference would it make to spend, I mean, to collect that much money? <laughs> but the idea is people from all over the world are rushing to this site as, these, as the earth begins to deteriorate so that they can be the ones who are not left behind, right? And they're able to survive these disasters. Now, the New Age mysticism movement doesn't want to miss the 2012 bandwagon. And so they've come out with a positive spin on this whole phenomenon. They, you know, the New Age, they reject Christianity. They deny the, the notion of a sinful human nature. They believe that's a myth. They believe that um, New Age thinking carries this aura of getting in touch with, with nature and the traditions of native culture. That's what man really should be doing. And so their spin on this is that they, they're writing books believing that man will enter into a new age of human consciousness because of a galactic alignment. When this galactic alignment, instead of it being a, a negative thing here on earth, creating great disaster, they believe it's actually going to create a new age of human consciousness which man is going to elevate himself even better and it'll be a, a new day of euphoria and, and great prosperity and, and, 
uh, here upon the face of the earth. Well, here's the question then. Will the world end in 2012? And you can say no to me, and I know that's true because I read my Bible too. But, but let me tell you, if you're talking to somebody who says, what about 2012? I, I really think there's something to it. We, we need to even look at it. Here's some things that you can tell them. First of all, the world will not end just because man says that it will. History is not man's story. It's his story. God wrote it from before the world was ever begun, right? And so God has determined when this, end, this world will end, and man do, does not determine that. Secondly, external events will not change human nature. So there will be no a, new age of, of human consciousness. We've never seen in the history of, of man since he fell where any uh, set of human events ever caused man's human consciousness to increase. It actually only goes the other way. Thirdly, 2012 will present its share of unexpected disasters and challenges just like every year does, but it's not going to uh, involve global enlightenment and catastrophe. We know that every year there's always some disasters that we could not plan for or could expect, and that will normally happen. We know also that there's no credible evidence to suggest the end of the world in 2012. The Mayan calendar will end its cycle December 21st, but no one really knows what that means, including those that are proposing the 2012 phenomenon. There are a vast majority of scientists, archaeologists, and anthropologists that just outright reject this as any kind of credible scientific theory. But more than that, I believe 2012 is man's substitute for God's end times plan because man wants to deny what God says. You remember when my uncle was preaching this morning, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, he was talking about men who showed up and were telling the church that they were already in the day of the Lord, and it was a continuing event that they were going through. There are men today that have gone further. They have just outright rejected God completely. And they don't like the fact that Tim LaHaye and, and Terry Jenkins came out with a series of books called Left Behind that were the number one bestsellers on the New York Times uh, booksellers list, right? It, it bothered them. They reject God in anything that God says he will do. And so 2012 becomes a convenient substitute for that. It makes sense to them that this world can't continue on, but they want to put their own spin on it and deny God that he exists or is in control. The Bible warns us. In Paul in, in uh, Colossians chapter 2 said, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See to it no one takes you captive. We need to be careful that we never fall for traps like this in, in man's reasoning. I find it interesting, too, in Matthew 24, when Christ was giving his final message to his disciples, and he was listing many of the key signs of the times that would come in the end. The very first thing he says to him is, see to it that no one misleads you. We need to be careful that we aren't misled uh, by men in their thinking. If we want to know when the world will end and whether it will end in 2012, the only place to turn really is the Bible because it presents God's plans for the future. And it is credible because all the prophecies that have already been fulfilled have been fulfilled precisely. That gives us great confidence that if God did everything in the past that he said he was going to do and fulfilled it, what is yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled just as precisely as in the past. Only God the Father will determine the end of the world and when those days will occur. But according to God's plan, it's not going to be in 2012, is it? We know the soonest the end of the world could occur 
would be 3,019. Because if the rapture occurred tonight, and amen if it did, but if it occurred tonight, there's still yet the seven-year tribulation period in the thousand-year millennial kingdom here on earth. 2012 is not going to be the end of the world. One of the uh, best passages of scripture to go to, if you want to know God's prophetic calendar and, and timeline, is in the book of Daniel. So turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, really, God gives his calendar for future events. He gave it to Daniel. Daniel uh, was in prayer to the Lord. He was making a petition before the Lord for his sins, the sins of his people, the the Jewish people, the the nation of Israel. And God heard his prayer as he was was laboring in prayer, and he sent uh, Gabriel, his angel, to speak to Daniel. And in verse 24... Gabriel reveals to Daniel a special prophecy. He says, beginning in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. 70 weeks. Do any of your Bibles say 77s? That's literally what the Hebrew says here. 77s. We understand that to be the seven-year cycle. Um, and uh, the Sabbath cycle, and so that this is 77s would be 490 years. And this, what he's about to reveal to him is being determined for Daniel's people, the Jewish people, and for his holy city, what city would that be? Jerusalem. It really isn't difficult, is it? You just read what God says. So this prophecy It's determined for Daniel's people, the Jewish people, for his holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Three things he talks here about for the Jewish people and for the holy city is that uh, the 70 weeks, when they are completed, will finish the transgression, the transgression of the Jewish people against God. And so it will make an end literally to seal up their sins. No longer will they sin when when this 70 weeks is completed. For he will make reconciliation for their iniquity, is what he's saying here. He is already prepared for that through Jesus' first coming. The word to make reconciliation is the word for atonement. He will atone for their iniquity. Christ has already paid the price for sin. Now, he goes on to say... This prophecy is given to the Jewish people and to Jerusalem to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision of prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. To bring in everlasting righteousness. I believe that is is referring to the uh, millennial kingdom yet to come. Uh, To bring in righteousness here, uh, everlasting righteousness, uh, is really to say, if if we translate this word for word from the Hebrew, we could translate this to bring in the righteousness of the ages. And if you know anything about the future millennial kingdom, the way it's described, for example, in Isaiah, it talks about it being a kingdom of righteousness. It will always be righteous. When it comes, righteousness will rule upon the earth throughout that whole period. It will also seal up a a vision and prophecy. In other words, God will fulfill the end of his prophecy that he's made here. It will put an end to all the unfulfilled as it fulfills all the prophecies. And to anoint the the most holy, I think that is a reference back to the city at the beginning of this verse. To anoint the city of Jerusalem, it could also be a reference to the anointing of Christ at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. 
So at the end of these 70 weeks, all of these things will come to be. Now in verse 25, he says, Now know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the peace, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. See if we can unpack that. From the going out of the command... Uh, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, there were four commands given to the Jewish people under the Persian Empire to return to Jerusalem. But only one of them included instructions to rebuild the city. That was uh, the decree of Artaxerxes that was in 445 B.C. So we know the beginning of this 70-week period. We can pinpoint it to an exact date. He says here that there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. I believe the seven weeks is a reference to how seven weeks being a period of 49 years. Seven times seven is 49. See, I can do math. 49 years for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. And then another period of 62 weeks. A total of 69 weeks, 483 years. Until Messiah the Prince... 32 A.D. is the completion of this 483 years, and it actually is Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus enters into the city on a donkey, is the completion of these 69 weeks. So just as God prophesied, he fulfilled. Great precision. And he says that... um, They will be built again, the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. That was a reference to the fact that when it was being rebuilt, it was going to be rebuilt during times when Israel was still under bondage. They were still under the authority of the Persian Empire. It was not a time when they controlled the land themselves and occupied themselves. That's, uh, in part, an amazing statement that God's making, because normally, when you were conquered by another nation, they didn't want you rebuilding the walls of your key city. Walls were security. That's how you defended yourself against enemies. When the Babylonians came in and defeated the Jewish, the southern kingdom, the the, the kingdom Judah and Benjamin, they had to defeat Jerusalem. They had to seize the city and destroy it. And and so it wouldn't be a natural thing for this to occur, but it does occur. God says it will, and it certainly did historically. We know that. Now, verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Uh, Again, a better translation from the Greek would be Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. Now, we know that because it says after the 62 weeks that this has to occur sometime after Palm Sunday in 32 AD, and it also indicates that, there, that it will occur before week 70, because it does not say during week 70, or in week 70, this will occur, it says, after, after the 62nd week. And the reference to having nothing, I think, is the explanation for why after 62 weeks, what he promised in verse 24 has still not been fulfilled. The ushering in of the kingdom. The reason is because when Jesus came the first time, he offered the kingdom to Israel, and they rejected it. So he was unable to usher in the kingdom. So he dies having nothing at that time. In other words, not having 
the ability to bring in the kingdom because the Jewish people did not accept him and his offer of the kingdom. And then it goes on here and says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war of desolations are determined. A rather um, bleak end to this verse. What Daniel could not have understood when this prophecy was given to him was the coming church age. Daniel may not have even fully understood the gap or how long that gap would be. We can't even define how long that gap will be, right? We know it's been for approximately 2,000 years. But he does say, um, he talks here about the prince of the people who destroyed the temple. Do you know who destroyed the temple in 70 AD? The Romans, right? And he talks about a prince who will come from these people, but it's not a prince who's alive when the temple's destroyed, it's a prince who's going to come later. And so uh, he talks about how um, the end of it will be with a flood. The flood in Scripture is normally a reference to the way armies can move in with sudden swiftness to destroy. And they would suddenly destroy uh, the city, the temple. And then, and then this will continue on to the end of war if desolation is determined. In other words, this period of time here will continue on until and the Jewish people will suffer as in a war with desolations, until the time God has determined. And then verse 27, very key verse, and then he shall confirm. Who is he? He is this prince who will come from the people who destroyed the temple. He is Antichrist. He is the prince of the people. Um, People often ask, is he Jewish? Is he Muslim? You know, who is he? Uh, We don't have definitive on that, but if I take this verse for what it says... He's got to come from the the Roman Empire, a revived form of that Roman Empire. Daniel tells us uh, in Daniel 2, the the image there, uh, that uh, that there will be a revived form of that Roman Empire. And so that Roman Empire, we see both there and in Daniel 7, that there will be a a little horn that raises up who will become the prince of the people who destroyed. I tend to think it's a Gentile. That's the simplest understanding of this verse. That he comes from the people who destroyed the temple, the Gentiles, the Romans. And then verse 27, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The many there being the Jewish people, that's who God is, is through the angel Gabriel here is declaring this prophecy through. The people there for one week, one week being the 70th week that's on this chart. And the 70th week, uh, seven years, one week would be equal to seven years. And uh, we, we understand that covenant to be a covenant of peace, that he promises to come in and protect Israel so that uh, they can, for the first time, that they can remember. They finally have peace, what they've been, that elusive thing they've been looking for. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. One of the things we understand from this verse is that offerings will be reinstituted in Jerusalem during this, this uh, last 70th week. We don't know exactly how that's going to come about. We know today that the Temple Mount is occupied by uh, the Muslims. It's a holy site. If uh, the Jewish people were to go up there today and begin building the temple, you would have a holy war in Jerusalem immediately. And there's probably nothing that would unite the Arab nations around uh, Israel more than doing something like that. God has that to work out. That's his problem, not mine. But here's something to keep in mind. The temple could be built during the first half of the tribulation period. It does not have to be 
completely built to, to institute sacrifices. When Israel came back from exile, they basically laid out the foundation of the temple, built an altar, sanctified it, dedicated it, and began offering sacrifices during the whole period of time that they rebuilt the temple. Same thing could occur here during this first three and a half years. What we do know is that by the midpoint of the tribulation, there will be a temple there, and that he will put an end to these sacrifices. So we divide this seven weeks into two three-and-a-half-year periods time. During the first three-and-a-half years, Antichrist is going to honor this covenant. During the second three-and-a-half years, he is going to persecute Israel. He is going to break this covenant. He will, uh, it goes on to say there that in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. He is going to uh, make himself the God to be worshipped here upon the earth. He is going to take the temple and make that the center of worship of, of Antichrist himself. The abomination of desolation, Christ referred to this from Daniel in the book of Matthew. And uh, we know that because God says it's going to happen, it will occur. This is God's calendar. It's not determined by man. It's determined by God Almighty. We have seen him fulfill 69 of the 70 weeks. One week yet to be fulfilled. And we know that um, that determination of that time is yet in God's hands. Tomorrow morning, or tomorrow evening, excuse me, uh, when I speak to you again, we're going to take a look at the prophetic calendar and uh, where exactly we're at on the prophetic calendar. We'll pick up at this point and move forward. So uh, be sure to come back, and I'll have another handout for you with the same chart, so you don't have to bring that one back if you don't want. But isn't it amazing what God is doing? Man is so busy trying to find a way that he doesn't have to recognize and honor God for what God has revealed. And he comes up with craziness, the idea that the world will end in 2012 because man thinks so. And because some civilization a couple thousand years ago figured out a calendar system, and that's good enough for them. But it's not good enough for me. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, your word is true, and we put our confidence in what you say, not what men say. Lord, I pray that if we encounter people over the next couple years who are wondering about this 2012 phenomenon, that we might be a good witness to point to them the error of their way, the foolishness of man's thinking. There is no certainty and no confidence in what man is saying about 2012, you could bring about the beginning of the tribulation at that time if you wanted to. But that is not for ours to speculate. Ours is to be your witness in this world, to direct people to Christ, and to lead people to the saving knowledge that will help or allow them to avoid eternal damnation. Lord, we rejoice in Jesus Christ we rejoice in the fact that he is our Savior, and that he came to earth and took our place on the cross so that we can have eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.